If you would, grab a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, where we'll begin this part of our worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, good to see you this morning, good to see we have visitors with us. Thank you for being here. want everyone to feel welcome, glad that you're here, looking forward to what we have to think about and study about this morning. I want to get right to it. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12 says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now, in my version, the words, all things are lawful for me, are in quotations. Because it seems that the Corinthians were going around with this saying. They had this attitude that said, everything is lawful for me. They take the idea of freedom in Christ, that Christ has set us free from sin, and they say, that now applies to the moral decisions that I make. I'm free to do this. All things are lawful. But Paul adds in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but he says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. He says there are some other considerations besides freedom. It reminds me a little bit of the phrase that was used in my youth. I don't know if it's still around. I haven't heard it as much lately. But we used to say to one another, well, it's a free country. You know, and and what that means is basically you can do what you want, but Maybe there's other things to consider besides just the fact that you live in a free country and you're capable of doing something. Our junior high classes this quarter are studying a book called Tough Choices, and they are discussing matters with a lot of subjectivity to them. And so I've been having those conversations with my boys who are both in that class and with some of you about some of those matters. And as I was having those conversations, it made me realize this is, this is information and a thought process that would benefit the whole congregation if we were thinking more about how we make tough choices. I want to talk for a few minutes this morning about some matters that Christians have to make decisions about that have an element of subjectivity to them, or perhaps we would call it just personal judgment. And just so we all know the kinds of things that we're talking about, I'm just going to put a list on the board and just kind of work through the list. And then I'll talk about why I want to talk about all of these things. First of all, I want to talk about things like gambling and drinking alcohol and dancing and profanity and smoking and gluttony and modesty and dating or marrying an unbeliever. Is that enough? In each one of these... There is a level of subjectivity. Some of these things the Bible says nothing about or at least does not directly condemn. So, for example, the Bible doesn't condemn gambling. The Bible does not condemn drinking alcohol. The Bible does not condemn dancing. Profanity, we'll talk more about in a minute. The Bible does not condemn smoking. And the Bible does not condemn dating or marrying an unbeliever. Some of these areas, though, it's not about the Bible doesn't condemn them as much as it is there are some gray areas about what constitutes it. Like, for example, profanity or gluttony or modesty, where we would all say, yes, there is a line that we need to be careful about crossing with those things, but we would have some disagreements about where that line is, or we might have to exercise some judgment. So some of them are about judgment as to a matter of degree. At what point do we cross the line? And some of them, it's about what exactly about it violates the will of God. We just have to make judgments. Now, my contention this morning, is that when we talk about matters like these that are gray areas where we have to make moral choices, we tend to ask one question. We tend to ask the question, can I do this? Is it okay? 
And what we do is then we go to the Bible and we search for that idea and we find, well, there's nothing in the Bible that says that's wrong, so it must be okay. I can do it. And then if somebody else tells me, well, it's not the best idea, we say, uh-uh, uh-uh, all things are lawful. Don't tell me what to do. I can do it. Bible doesn't say it's wrong. And my contention further is that that's not very helpful because we need to reason further about some other matters about this. We need to think about wisdom and foolishness. We need to think about consequences and influence. We need to ask the question, should I do this? So what we're going to do this morning is what I'm going to call moving from can to should. Learning the questions that will help us mature our perspective so that we're not just asking Does God condemn it somewhere? But we're asking, what should I do given the information I have from God, from the world, from other people that I trust? When we make these kinds of moral decisions, I have observed, this is my observation, that a number of Christians resort to a parent-child dynamic about spiritual things. That is, like a petulant child, we say something like, do I have to? Do I have to come Do I have to be here for this? Do I have to say no to this? And then we see that if a matter is not specifically condemned in Scripture, we act like we have permission to do it. Well, you can't stop me because the Bible doesn't say not to. And I am suggesting, in fact, I'm going to suggest it very strongly this morning, that's not very helpful in how we actually make decisions. That at some point, it doesn't matter what other people say or whether we can out-argue them or whether they tell us not to, or they tell us it's fine, that someday we will stand before God in judgment, and we will have to tell God, this is why I did what I did. We're going to have to answer for our choices, and we need to move from a mindset that says, can I do it, to a mindset that says, should I? So I want to do that by offering some different questions that will help us to think about how we reason about matters where there's a gray area, Matters where there is some subjectivity and we have to make judgment. The first question is, what does God want? Obviously, we should always start here. It should always be a matter of what is God's will about any topic. And very often, as you know, God communicates his will by prohibitions. He says, there are things I want you to not do. Do not do these things. So this is Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is a list of things that he says, do not do these, and there is a threat to it. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. But I want you to notice that even in a list like this, there are some subjective ideas. For example... While sexual immorality is fairly clear, what does impurity consist of? What is sensuality precisely? At what point are we jealous? All right, there are things about this that are subjective. And then you've got, as if there's not enough subjectivity, you've got this phrase, things like these. Well, there you go. Well, in in other words, I've got some other things I could have put on the list, but I feel like the list is long enough. But you know the kind of thing I'm talking about, is what Paul is saying. He expects us to take that and say, this is about God's will for how his people live. And there are some things about that that God expects us to take 
and then live out and apply and reason through. Understanding what God wants from us as his people. So, as we do that, we have to keep asking the question, what does God want? Now, the other part of that is that I want you to realize that God reveals his will in more than just prohibitions. That it's not just that God says these things are off limits, everything else is great. That there are other ways God says, here's what I want for you. So look in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12 with me again. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Well, there's another criterion that helps us understand what God wants. Is it beneficial? Is it good for me? God doesn't want me to be engaged in things that are not helpful, I think particularly here, to other people. He also says in verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Is it possible for something to not be wrong and yet still enslave us? Yes, it is. And he says, I want to be careful, even if it's lawful, that I don't become a slave again. I mean, Jesus died to buy me out of slavery. How can I go back to slavery? If, I, if it's lawful, if it's good, then it shouldn't enslave me again. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So there is also this question, what did God intend for me when he gave me this body, when he gave me this stomach? What did he intend? What is God's will for my life? And you see, that's much more than just some things that I can't do. It is instead a broader view of how God wants me to live and how he wants me to use what he has given me. So there are other considerations besides does God say it's a sin. Let's talk a little bit about uh, drinking. Sometimes people's study on drinking, drinking alcohol, is as simple as saying, well, where does the Bible condemn drinking alcohol? So let me just set our bearings in that discussion. First of all, Scripture repeatedly and clearly condemns drunkenness, but Scripture doesn't condemn the idea of just drinking some alcohol, provided we're not getting drunk. And so there, there seems to be some gray area there. And so some people say, well, see, it doesn't say not to, so it must be fine. Let me remind you that that's not the only way God reveals his will. Proverbs 20 and verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Now, I can hear it right now. See, it doesn't say it's wrong. Yeah, I know. What does it say? What does it communicate? This is not about God, us trying to find another way around there not being a prohibition. This is about God trying to give us wisdom and saying, here is a stupid path, a set of choices that will be bad for you. Does that matter? Does it matter that God warns us against something? Even if he doesn't say, if you do this, you will be condemned. 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. What direction does that seem to be pointing us in? When he says there is a path that is the path of the Gentiles, godless people, and it involves this lifestyle of rowdiness and sexuality and drinking. And he says, don't be like that anymore. That's not the way you are. That's not the way my people are going to be. Now, you can look through that verse and you can try to find, well, what exactly constitutes a drinking party? 
But I think we all know exactly what he's saying. So, what does God want? It's obvious what God wants. We have to reckon with what direction God is pointing us in. There is more to the story than just, is it wrong? The question is, what does God want me to do about this? In other words, the question is, should I do it? Not just, can I do it? Nowhere does Scripture condemn gambling. It doesn't even address gambling in the form that we have it today. Uh, Most of the times when I have heard Christians try to condemn gambling, there is sort of a tortured biblical argument that has to do with how we make money and things like that. I, I I don't buy it. So what does that mean? I mean, what do we do now? Hey, the preacher said it. It's free reign, right? Is that all there is to the question? Do we just, you know, put it into our Bible program and search? Oh, there's no results, so it must be fine. Well, think about it. How else would God communicate what he wanted about that? Could it be more than just a prohibition? Let me ask you some questions. What kinds of things is gambling generally associated with? What does gambling generally lead people to do? What do we do about the fact that many people become compulsive and addictive gamblers? Remember, I will not be mastered by anything. What is God's will about our stewardship of the things he's given us? Does gambling help me demonstrate love for other people? There's a lot of questions to answer there. It's a lot deeper than the simple question... Is it condemned in Scripture? The question is, what does God really want about this? So I want to urge you, as you think about these questions, yes, we do need to go to Scripture. Yes, we do need to think about what God says and what God does not say. But please, don't restrict it to just the question, can I do it? Is it condemned or not? Ask the question, should I do it? What does God really want from me? Second, how does it affect other people? We're still here in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Let's look at it here. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but he says, not all things are helpful. So there may be things, please hear me, there may be things that we are perfectly free to do that we shouldn't do because of how they affect other people. That's what he is saying. And he gives us an example. Turn the page to 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8. So here is a situation. Now, it is not a modern situation. We don't have this situation today. But reasoning through this situation can help us to some of the things that I put on the board a moment ago. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 4, Paul writes, talking about food offered to idols, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. All right, so let's just be very clear, he says. There is no such thing as an idol. It's not a God. You don't need to worry about it. It doesn't taint the meat. You're not devoted to the God. It's not a thing. Eat the food. The food is fine. You are free to do it. Except, look at verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. 
Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Not everybody understands, Paul says, what I said about idols. Not everybody gets it. And if we use our freedoms in front of them, we embolden them to do something wrong. That's the word Paul uses. They become emboldened to do something they believe is wrong. Now, I want to be very careful here. I am not saying that we just always have to do what other people like. And if anybody doesn't like a choice we make, we have to stop making that choice. For one, that's impossible. Because somebody will always have an opinion about everything we do. I'm also not saying, nor is Paul saying, that other people get to make our moral decisions for us. That you have to be subject to everybody else's conscience. And I'm not saying, nor is Paul saying, that the fact that we're going to disagree about some interpretations of things, for example, an issue like eating things sacrificed to idols, that the fact that we're going to disagree about some matter of interpretation means we have to bow to them on everything. Just cede your convictions and just do what's best in their eyes. No, when Paul uses the word offend or the word stumbling block in this text, he's not just talking about anything that upsets other people. We use that word offense in that way today. I'm offended because I don't like something you said or did. That's not the issue. The issue here is we're talking about leading people into sin. You think it's wrong. I do it in front of you and try to encourage you to do it too. You end up saying, well, if Jacob says it's okay, it must be okay. I'll go ahead and do it even though I think it's wrong. That's a problem. And Paul is saying, if you do this, it's not just about you and God. Just doing what you feel like. Remember that your actions affect other people. And not all things that are lawful are helpful. This must be our reasoning process as disciples of Jesus. We do not live in a vacuum. Our actions affect other people. And Paul says that must be part of how you decide. Otherwise, you end up sinning. Did you notice in verse 12? He says, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. It is possible for us to take things that are perfectly right to do and sin by do them, doing them. That's what he says you don't do. He says, think about how it affects other people. Look in chapter 10 with me. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 23. 1 Corinthians 10 and 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Isn't that interesting? It may be lawful, but it might not build anybody up, in which case you might just leave it off. Let everything be done for edification. Does it build up? Does it help others? So let me just make that clear. Even if we come to the conclusion that something is fine, we still have to think about how it impacts other people. So, for example, on the issue of what is modest dress. God urges us to dress modestly and with propriety, with moderation. And that application of how that looks is going to be different person to person, generation to generation, family to family. And so we begin to ask these questions that, that demand some subjectivity. Like what exactly does modest dress look like? You know, how far off the knee, how tight, how close, all that kind of thing. And we've got to reason through those things. And we have to exercise judgment about that. And we need to think about what does God want from me as I dress myself? But there is also this question. Even when we come to the conclusion that this is fine to wear, how does it affect other people? Is it possible 
that decisions that we think are fine are actually going to lead other people into dangerous places? Is that possible? And if so, what, what should we do about that? Is that just their problem? Or do my choices sometimes affect other people? So we need to ask those questions. How is this going to affect other people who see me in this? So, for example, if a woman wears something that she feels is modest and yet her brothers see her in that, will they be led to lust after her and to be thinking things that they shouldn't be thinking about her? Now, is that their problem? Of course, that's their problem. We all have to discipline ourselves. But what I do, even in my freedom, affects other people. The question is not, can I do it? The question is, should I? So don't be selfish in your can I. Ask the question, is this going to be helpful? Is this going to build up? Is it going to be seeking my own good or the good of others? Third question, what are my motives? I want you to go with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark 7. This is one of those questions that we really only can answer for ourselves. I can't answer this for you. I can't guess at your motives. That's really not fair. Only I know my motives, and I have to be very careful to be honest with myself about my motives. And yet this is an important question as we reason through moral matters that have some gray area and subjectivity to them. Mark chapter 7 and verse 15 Jesus says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then he explains in verse 18, He said to them, Then you, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he, declares all food, he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So Jesus says the important battles go on in our hearts. The important battles are not what goes on just in our environment. It is what do I want, and why am I doing what I am doing? So Jesus says things like, you'll know people by their fruits the things that come out of their hearts that then are manifested in their lives. Or, he says, out of the treasure of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when you want to know what somebody's heart is, you evaluate the fruits of their actions or the fruits of their lips, what they say. And you begin to see the heart by that fruit. Isn't it amazing that two people can use the same environment same situations, and one do good in it, and one do evil in it? What's the difference? The difference is not the environment. The difference is the heart, the person. So, have you ever had the situation where you were willing to do something that you believed was wrong because somebody else pressured you into it? There are some things that we begin to change our opinions on just because of the people we are around. Things like, well, drinking and smoking or promiscuity or profanity. And I want us to think about what happens when we're in those situations. It is not that we've been carefully thinking about a passage of Scripture and we've suddenly decided, you know what, this passage of Scripture does not indicate that God's will for me is to do this. What we're doing is we feel pressured 
And so suddenly we do something that we know we don't feel comfortable with, and then we cycle back to justify ourselves. We need to be honest about this. What's really happening? Are we allowing other people to set the temperature of our morality? What is my motive in this? But I have to say, the real issue with motive, the big question here, is that we just usually really want to do it. You can go through that list. Whatever it is, wherever your uh, temptations are or struggles are, if they're on that list, the wish can easily become the author of the thought. And I want to be very clear. If we really, really want to do something, there is no amount of scripture that's going to stand in our way. There is no amount of counsel and warning and wisdom People telling us, don't do that, it's bad news. Let me show you what happened when I did it. No amount of that will stop us. If we really want to do it, we're going to do it. We're going to find a, a pretext to do it. We're going to find ways to justify it. We're going to argue with the people who would argue with us. We are going to do what we want to do. So the motive question becomes important. Because it sure seems to me, and I will say this from my own experience in justifying my own behavior, that it wasn't until I wanted to do what's right that I really started challenging my, mo my views on things that were gray area decisions. So we need to ask that question. What are my motives? Fourth question. Don't worry, I've only got five. I'm not going to use the whole slide. Fourth question. Is it wise? Is it wise? You know, one of the major drawbacks of asking the can I decision is that it eliminates the role of wisdom. So let me give you a couple of examples. You know, the book of Proverbs usually reasons with us by wisdom. Uh, so, for example, Proverbs 21.9, it's better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house share with a quarrelsome wife. It's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. So there is a way we can look at that and say, well, he didn't say it was wrong. I mean, if I want to, hey, if I want to marry a quarrelsome wife, I'm going to do it. Don't tell me what to do. You don't tell me who to marry. And sometimes it appears to me that that's the way we reason when we're in a can-I mindset. Nobody tells me what to do. This is not saying that you've sinned when you marry someone like this. He is saying there is a path of life that is full of misery. And if you want it, do this. It seems to me that we need to think about the wisdom of our choices. Wisdom, ask questions like, how does this normally go? When somebody marries somebody like this, how does that work out? What kind of lives do they lead? Is that the kind of life that I want? Wisdom asks questions. Like, is there a danger here? Am I getting close to someone who might be bad for me? What do other people say about that? And I might just add, we could say some similar things. I mentioned at the beginning the idea of marrying or dating a non-Christian, an unbeliever. And I would say similar things about that. I don't believe that the Bible prohibits that. But is it a good idea? That's the question. Is it wise? How does that normally go? And I trust that in an audience like this, if you've been around a while, you've seen how that plays out. And it doesn't always happen, and I'm not saying that you have to do anything. That's not the issue. The issue is about wisdom. How do these things normally go? What kind of life will it lead to? What can we say about it? 
Or to give you another example from Proverbs, it says, one who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. So is, is it wrong to give a surety, you know, to co-sign on a note? No, it's not wrong. That's not really the issue, is it? He's not saying, hey, you have committed immorality when you do this. He is saying, be wise. And you can read most of the Proverbs that way, not as commands, but as advice, things to avoid. And you might say, I think, in fact, sometimes we get into modes where we say, well, then, Proverbs is pretty useless. I mean, it doesn't tell us what's wrong. It just tells you what's foolish. And that is valuable information, too. Well, let's talk uh, about smoking. The Bible doesn't condemn smoking. There was not that practice in Bible times. I would ask, does that seem like a wise choice to you? And I would work through those questions. Where does it lead? Is it good for me? How does it go when people do this? What path does that go down? Sometimes people ask, well, do I have to come to Bible class? Do I have to come on Wednesday night to services? And that phrase kind of betrays them, the have to. But in terms of the biblical command, there's no prohibition. There's no force. The only thing that the Bible says about when we come together is the first day of the week. But I have to ask the question, first of all, why are we asking if we have to do something that would draw us closer to God and to one another? But beyond that, just how does that go when people start doing that? I'll tell you from some experience that when you see people attending services regularly and then they begin to miss services, it's not that I say, oh no, missing services is unacceptable. It's that when we miss services, it is a warning sign to everyone that something is not right. We're making choices that take us away from the people who center us and draw us closer to God. The question is, is it wise? So let me give you a few questions. Help us determine if something is wise. What kind of person does this decision make me? Where does this path lead? Sometimes I don't think we think of decisions, by the way, as a path. But each decision takes us down a path toward a certain kind of life. And if we think about it that way, then we ask the question, well, which direction am I going? Or am I trying to walk in two paths at once? Where am I headed with my life? Will this practice help me teach the lost? Would Jesus do it? Would I want my kids to do it? By the way, it's humbling as a parent. Because I, I don't want my kids to make some of the decisions that I've made. I know that they were dumb decisions. Will this make it harder for me to live right? Is this something I used to think or previously admitted was wrong? Would I want Jesus to come back and find me doing this? Those are some sobering questions that ask, is it wise? And the last one is, how is my conscience? Let's go over to Romans 14. Romans 14. So there might be some things that are not wrong per se, but we feel like they're wrong. And Scripture teaches us to be aware of that feeling, to be sensitive to the idea of the conscience. Romans 14, I just want to read a couple of verses here. Romans 14 and verse 14. Romans 14 and verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, 
but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So do you notice the difference there? It's not that it's unclean in itself. It's not that this is wrong. It's that you believe it's wrong, and so you shouldn't go ahead and do it if you believe it's wrong. Verse 23, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It's important that we know that as we serve God, our consciences are clear. If we plunge ahead with with doing something that we're not sure about, Paul says we sin. Now, of course, consciences can change. Our conscience can be educated. We can grow to have more information. Or maybe we're just in a different place and we think differently about something. That's its own issue. The problem is that the conscience is the emotional part of us. And the emotional part doesn't always follow the reasoning part. So we might say, yes, I know that that's okay. I think Jews in the first century had that problem. Yes, I know it's okay to eat this. But man, if I eat that, I feel bad. Listen to your conscience, even if you're free to do it. If you do it, will you feel guilty? Try to think of a good example of this. This may not be a good example, in which case, sorry. Think about profanity. Bible warns us about corrupt communication. But it doesn't give us a list of what words are profane. Of course, every language has their own list of words that are profane. And yet there is also the idea, usually when we talk about profanity, we're talking about offense, words that cause offense. Okay, well, what, what, if, what if nobody's around? Nobody to offend. Let's say it's just me and my car. Is that all right? Just cuss up a storm? Just me and my car? Yeah, I'll just say for me, absent all the other considerations, I could not do it. I would feel wrong, even if nobody ever heard any of that, and I wasn't trying to offend anybody. I know that there may be some other considerations about vulgarity there, but let me just say, when every other question is set aside, if it still feels wrong, then your conscience still matters. Let me get a little more specific and maybe a little more Um, realistic. Somebody invites you to a movie that you know is not going to be good for you because you know some of the stuff that's in it and you know you shouldn't be seeing it. Somebody invites you to go out with a person that you know is not a good person. Somebody encourages you to do things that you know are a gray area, borderline things. This is a tremendously helpful question to ask. How will I feel about this tomorrow? If I go and do it and I'm done and and maybe it turns out in a different way than I expected, whatever happens, how will I feel? There will be a time when everybody else leaves us alone and we are left with the memory and guilt of what we did. How am I going to feel then? Conscience still matters. What does God want? How does it affect other people? What are my motives? Is it wise? How is my conscience? Can I say this? This is a lesson that I hope will be helpful to you. This is a message I'm trying to teach my children. But I also feel that this is something I have had to live and learn for myself. In my raising... 
I was surrounded by Christian people, other Christian young people. And there were some other families that did things different than our family did. And some of the things that they did and things that they said were wrong, I didn't agree with. It wasn't biblical. And so what I did, especially in my teenage years, is I condescended to those people. Don't they even know what the Bible says? The Bible doesn't talk about that. They're just making rules. And boy, I felt superior. Time passed. And I, feeling free and feeling like I was better than them, I could do what I want. I mean, the Bible doesn't say not to. I didn't recognize that there were dangers in a lot of the questions that we've talked about. I think we would all acknowledge, if we're being honest, that things are gray, not because there's no problem with them, but at some point they become a problem, whether we're talking about gambling or drinking or whatever it may be. And I fell headlong into those sins. And I did things that I don't even want to tell you about because I thought, you know what? Bible doesn't say not to. And I crossed lines, not even gray areas, because I was encouraged by that dynamic to do things that were wrong. I just don't think that the fact that I might be able to out-argue another person or the fact that I can say, well, the Bible doesn't specifically condemn it, that's not the end of a discussion. We still have to make choices. To our young people, you still have to make choices that will affect your state. You will stand before God, not based on what your parents thought or what your classmates did, but on what you choose. Think about that as you make those choices. Think about the fact that it's not just about what you're free to do. What should you do? Paul says all things are lawful, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. I'll not be mastered by anything. And if there's something that you need to change, you need to think about, a decision you need to revisit, I pray that you'll do that. Might be someone here this morning who needs to come and have the forgiveness of God for the things that they've done in their lives. Jesus died, shed his blood to set us free from sin. And if you're ready to take that, have that blood applied to your soul and your state, we'd love nothing more than to help you to be baptized into Christ, walk with God. If you have a need, please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.